fairly recently worked it out so that once a quarter we keep the kids in the sanctuary with us as we go through communion so that uh, they can watch, observe, listen. Uh, one of the reasons that we do that is because uh, we think that we see a pattern in Scripture where from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, God is intentionally speaking to, um, communicating with children, sometimes even just through the natural inquisitive way that they look at things. And so as we go into this time of communion, I want to sort of show, help us to reflect on the way in which not only is the Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper profitable for us, the people who actually participate in it, um, but is meant to be profitable um, for the instruction and the training um, of our children. So, um, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 through 25. And I think we have these verses that we can also put up on the, put up on the screen. Of course, this is Moses speaking to the Israelites and trying to prepare them uh, for entering into the, uh, into the promised land. And he's reminding them of all the commands and the instructions that God has given them, uh, everything that they are to observe and to do regularly, uh, at times annually or on a seasonal basis. And there's an interesting section in Deuteronomy 6 uh, where we read this, uh, starting at verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What do the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments mean which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. Moreover, the Lord showed great and distressing signs and wonders before our eyes against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. He brought us out from there in order to bring us in to give us the land which he had sworn to our fathers. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. It will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. Two things to take note of here before we hopefully make the transition to show the relevance for us. One is that there seems to be built into these, this repetition of ceremony and observances and formality. Uh, there seems to be built into that an opportunity that God has provided his people to be able to train up the generation to come about what it means to walk in the ways of the Lord. The ceremonies and the rituals that God's people did in the Old Testament was meant to teach them to say something about who this God is that they worshipped. And the observances that they had, everything from Passover to the Feast of Unleavened Bread to all of these other requirements and stipulations were meant to say something about not just the God that they worshipped, but their relationship to that God, how he had called them out to be a people for himself to make them different from everyone else, and to walk with him all the days of our lives. The second thing is, is that it, I think 
there is implicit within this an opportunity for the parents themselves, for the adults. When the child comes and says, what in the world does all this crazy stuff mean? Why are you grabbing this bread and why are you drinking this juice or why are you grabbing that animal? Whatever the, the ceremony was. There's an opportunity for the parent in teaching the child to rehearse in their own mind their identity based in the work of God who saved them. So that when the son or the daughter comes and asks, what is it that we're doing here? Why do we do this? Yes, that's a golden opportunity to answer and to tell them, well, this is, is reminding us of something big about God and what he's done, but it's also a way by review and by repetition to drill into the hearts and the minds of the adults this is why I'm doing what I'm doing here. It helped prevent it from becoming just mindless repetition. It was to draw the mind and the heart back to something that God had done so that the ceremony was always another opportunity to remember what God had done and to celebrate. So there's a way in which the, the teaching, the, the formula that's laid out in Deuteronomy 6, here's how you answer your child, in one sense could be said by people across the ages that belong to God. I've made a, a feeble attempt to reword Deuteronomy 6 in something of a new, new covenant um, lingo or new covenant paradigm. So for us, it might be something like this. We wouldn't talk about an exodus from Egypt, but it might read like this for us. When your child asks you in time to come, saying, what is the Lord's Supper? And what does the bread and the juice mean, which the Lord our God commanded you? Then you shall say to your child, we were slaves to sin, and the Lord freed us from the curse with a mighty hand. Moreover, before our eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified and raised again in victory against death, the devil, and all his works. He brought us out from the domain of darkness in order to bring us into the kingdom of his beloved son, to give us the inheritance which he has promised us. So Jesus commanded us to observe the Lord's Supper, to fear him for our good and for our salvation as we are doing today. It is a sign of our righteousness when we keep this command before our Lord and Savior, just as he commanded. Let me just say a word to the parents briefly. It's a, it's a good thing when your kids ask questions about what we do in a service like this. It's even a good thing when your kids ask you questions that you don't necessarily know how to answer right off because typically what that does is it drives you back to the Word or it drives you back to the church to say, hey, my kid asked me this question and I didn't know what to answer. It's God graciously through your children giving you an opportunity to review and rehearse in your own heart and mind why it is that we do these things. That it's not just empty repetition or rote ceremony. For all of you kids who are in here, who watch and see your parents doing this or your grandparents or whoever it is that brings you to church, you need to understand the reason that we do this is because every single person in this room, before they met Jesus, was a slave to sin. Every single one of us. Your mom and dad, your grandma and granddad, your pastors, your deacons, your elders, every single person who comes up to take this bread and juice, they take it as a way to remind themselves, to remind ourselves of the fact 
that we were hopelessly lost. We were in bondage to slave and to sin and to death. But that by a great show of power, God saved us as a unique people by sending Jesus to die in our place to pay for the penalty of our sin. And that when he died and was buried and raised again, that meant that we were raised to new life as well, that we're no longer in slavery to sin. We now live a new life and that we have even better things ahead of us that God has promised us because of what Jesus has won for us. So that's what we're doing here when we go through the process, the pattern of the Lord's Supper. It's a way for us to renew our minds and renew our hearts. It's a way for us to train or to introduce even our children and our grandchildren to the faith that we hold dear, trusting that God in His grace and mercy will use these opportunities to plant deep with them, sort of this holy curiosity to know more about Jesus and what it means to be saved from sin and death, to be given new life, and to have the promise of new life to come in a new heaven and new earth. All of these things are wrapped up in this. Bow with me in prayer. Father, as we just sang, we bow our knees and we humbly acknowledge that you are not just our creator, the one who brings us into existence. You are our king. We owe you everything. And in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our disobedience, you gave more than what would ever be required of you. You gave your own son to come to take on a human existence, to live perfectly in all the areas in which we failed, and then to be that perfect undeserving payment for our sin so that because our sin has been paid for now we can walk in newness of life thank you that because of Jesus we are granted we are given as a credit his perfection and his righteousness that goes with us all the days of our lives we ask that as we come to this uh, this time of remembrance and uh, as we participate in this sacrament that you would turn our minds and our hearts to the significance of what we celebrate, to remember the fact that we were once dead in our trespasses and sin, but now by your grace through Jesus Christ and the quickening power of your Holy Spirit, we have been made alive together with you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. On the last night that Jesus had before he went to the cross, he had his disciples with him in a room, and he engaged in uh, this meal, this supper, part of which we imitate or replicate here this morning. He had bread, and he took bread and he broke it, and he showed it to his disciples, and he said, this bread represents my body, which is going to be broken for you. The brokenness that we experience as sinners was experienced by Christ himself, not because he was broken, he was perfect, he was whole in every way, but he allowed himself to be broken so that he could make broken people whole again. And he also took a cup, and he said this wine in the cup represents the blood that's about to be poured out. It's not that Jesus was going to go part way in his brokenness and offering himself up as our sacrifice, 
the cup representing the blood, reminds us of the fact that Jesus went all the way to death, a miserable death, and was buried and laid down in a tomb just like all of us will be one day. But that because of his obedience to the will of his Father and making payment for our sin, we know also that on the other side of that death and burial there is the resurrection, a sign that death could not hold him, that sin had been perfectly and satisfactorily paid for, so that all now who put their trust in Jesus Christ would be forgiven and would be granted the power of a new life. The same kind of resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is what resides in us through the Holy Spirit to give us freedom from sin. So I'll ask our men to come forward to prepare uh, serving the elements. We'll have one of our men come up and row by row in each section. Uh, we'll have your row come up to receive uh, the bread and the juice. Uh, after you exit your pew and come to the front to take the elements, then you just simply return back to your seat. Uh, Andy and some of the, uh, the praise team will be uh, singing. You can feel free to join in song as you think, as you pray, as you set your mind on Scripture. But in all of this... Be mindful of the fact that what we celebrate here is what identifies us as a people bound to each other, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ as payment for our sin. Is this you? If you have your Bibles with you, open up to Genesis chapter 21. I didn't have a handout for notes. In the back as you were coming in, you may have seen, some of you may have picked up, I'm not sure, I should have mentioned this, I guess, during uh, communion, the Deuteronomy 6 passage that we used in the Lord's Supper we had that Deuteronomy 6 passage and then uh, the rewording of that passage for, um, for us. We had that on a, a printout, a sheet of paper outside, and there was a little bit of space at the bottom of the page and then a blank, page on the, uh, blank space on the back, of course, where you could, you could make notes. That's, that's how fancy it gets this morning. All right, so you're just going to have to buck up and deal with the inconvenience of not having uh, a full-blown handout for you, but... The good news is um, that because this is sort of an abbreviated uh, message, I, I tried really hard to, to limit uh, the points and the, the verbiage so that we could try to keep it simple and to the point to retain a little bit better. So, in Genesis chapter 21, verses 9 through 21. I want to read this section of Scripture and try to limit, for the most part, try to limit what we say about it to, uh, to two points, uh, two observations worth making. Um, if you know the storyline, we're, we're still in the, uh, the story of Abraham and Sarah and now Isaac. 
Genesis 21 is uh, in the first seven or eight verses, gives us the account, the record of, uh, of Isaac's birth, the celebration that comes. Abraham is 100 years old, Sarah 99 or 99 or 90. She 10 years, I think 10 years younger. Anyway, they're both old, all right? And they shouldn't be having kids at this point, but they do. Miraculously, God gives an old man and his barren wife the ability to conceive. And so they have this son, Isaac, whom the Lord promised, which is a fulfillment of his word to them. They're celebrating that, and then that celebration that we see in the beginning of, uh, of chapter 21 is short-lived. There's conflict um, that arises in the house, and that's what we want to look at this morning. So if you'll pick up with me in Genesis 21, verse 9... We read this, now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son, and by that he means his son Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, verse 12, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendant shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also, because he is your descendant. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, about a bowshot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes now to see wonderful things from your word. We trust uh, that on uh, your word to us that all scripture is God-breathed, uh, that it's profitable for our instruction, for our training, for equipping in righteousness and every good work. Would you work on hearts and minds here this morning by the power of your spirit, bring conviction where needed, bring comfort where needed. May all things happen according to your will and according to the way that you have determined to use your word by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Two points to make here. We'll break it up in, uh, into two parts. Let me say, because I don't think we're going to have time to, to get there, um, Paul draws heavily on this episode in the life of Abraham in Galatians chapter 4, uh, verses 21 through 31. Now, some of the things that Paul says there about this event, we, we may touch on in a roundabout way, but I don't know that we're necessarily going to go to Galatians, but it would be well worth your time to see the point that Paul makes in drawing from this narrative in Genesis. Uh, we'll, we'll break it up into two parts. We'll, we'll take the first part, which is um, the dilemma, the friction, the conflict that exists in Abraham's household. 
between Sarah and Hagar and the respective sons, Isaac and Ishmael. And then we want to look in the second part at the way that God dealt with Hagar and Ishmael. I think for the, for the most part, the difficulty or the challenge that comes with this passage is that um, if we're understanding or reading the story correctly, uh, Isaac is no longer a toddler. He's growing. Ishmael is probably a good 10 years older than him. And Sarah looks out one day and sees Ishmael playing, teasing, doing something with Isaac that she interprets as something of a threat. Uh, either she doesn't feel like uh, her son is being respected in the way that he should, or maybe she feels like Ishmael, the, the servant boy, is being a little too familiar with, uh, with you know, the heir, the inheritor of Abraham's fortune. And so she comes to Abraham and basically says, you know, I, I want this woman and her son out of here. They cannot stay here with Isaac. And the, the shocking thing, in a way, is that Abraham seems to have the, the normal response. For whatever you want to say about Abraham and what brought Ishmael into the picture, the fact that he went and fathered a child with another woman as an attempt to secure God's promise through his efforts rather than through God's provision, at least you could say at this point that Abraham demonstrates the fact that he's not cold and heartless, the prospect of sending his son out into the wilderness is not something that he looks forward to. He's upset by it. But then the Lord comes and basically says, no, you need to do what Sarah said. Cast them out. Which doesn't sound very loving. Which doesn't sound very kind, very gracious. Why would God do that? Here's point number one. The reason that God has Abraham cast Hagar and Ishmael out is because God identifies and separates his people according to birth. God identifies and separates his people, or we should say separates a people, according to birth. Notice that the issue here, to a large degree, deals with who the rightful heir to the promise will be. Sarah recognizes, even though her intentions may not be pure, Sarah recognizes that Isaac is the one who is to inherit and receive all of the blessings and all of the kindness that God has given to Abraham is to be passed on down to Isaac. And when she sees Ishmael presumably putting himself on par with the rightful heir, she sees that as a threat. He has no part in the inheritance. The inheritance is something that God has promised to give to Abraham, which is to be passed on to Isaac. Therefore, Ishmael needs to be separated. And God, in his wisdom, said that that's right. Now, within the broader framework of Scripture, what we, what we see here is sort of a, uh, a little family dysfunction is ultimately pointing to a bigger picture. Isaac is referred to throughout Scripture as the son of promise. 
He is the life, he is the son, the heir that God granted to Abraham and Sarah, not by any of their work or effort, solely as a miracle. God created life where there was no life before. And because this is God's work, God is the one who says, Isaac will be the one who will be your heir. Isaac is the one who will carry on the promises. Isaac is the one who will provide further descendants in this covenant relationship. Ishmael, on the other hand, is the son of the flesh. It's what Abraham and Sarah tried to create for themselves in their own ability, with their own wisdom, with their own ingenuity, in order to gain or secure the promises of God. And God wants to make it abundantly clear that granting His promises and His blessings, and those blessings continuing and spreading from one person to another has nothing to do with your help. I don't need your help. I don't want your efforts. All of this is my program and my plan. Therefore, it's going to be Isaac and not Ishmael. And this carries all the way over into the New Testament. Hold your place here if you're in Genesis 21 and go to John chapter 3. This is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Look at John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Do you see the same pattern going on here? Jesus is saying that as God continues his plan of redemption... As God continues His promise to redeem, to save, to salvage His creation and His image bearers, that God is still going about creating a people for Himself who are going to be the recipients of His blessing, who are going to benefit from His presence in their midst. But now, when we come to the question of birth, who gets in, Jesus says, well, it still comes down to birth, but now I'm even more discriminating. Now, it's not a matter of physical birth, it's a matter of spiritual birth. If you are not born again, if you do not have a spiritual birth, you have no part to play in the promises of God. If you are not born again, if you do not have a spiritual birth, you are not one of God's people. Listen, Edgewood. One of the most dangerous places for you to be is right here on Sunday morning. If you have not had a new birth. Because, like Ishmael, you sit in close proximity with the children of God. You identify yourself in some shape or to some extent as being one of God's children, one of His sons, one of His daughters, when in fact... 
you may have nothing more than a fleshly birth. You're here because this is the way you were brought up. My parents always took us to church. I'm going to church. My kids need to be in church. We're going to church. And your participation, your presence in a gathering of God's people means absolutely nothing. If you have not had for yourself a birth that comes by the miraculous power of God that creates life where only death exists. If you have not been regenerated, made new, if your eyes have not been opened, if your ears have not been opened, if your mind has not been transformed, you are not one of God's children. It does not matter what you look like on the outside. It does not matter what role your name is on or what family you come from. Even today, God is identifying and separating out for himself his true sons and his true daughters who have been born by a miraculous work of his spirit and to whom he's promised all of the blessings of eternity and his presence forever in a new heaven and new earth. So the first thing to take to heart and to be mindful of is the fact that every day that you draw breath, especially every day that you come and you gather, you want to examine yourself and you want to know, am I really part of the children of God? Paul and Peter and John encourage us over and over and over again, examine yourself and see that you're in the faith. Don't be deceived. So point number one, God identifies and separates a people for himself according to birth. In our case, according to a spiritual birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Number two, God is merciful to the outcast. There's a certain tension, or maybe we should say paradox, that runs through this narrative that on the one hand, God says, yes, Sarah is right, no matter how you feel, Abraham, no matter how it, it, it pulls on your heart, she's right. Ishmael has no part to play in the inheritance. He has no role to fulfill in this covenant family. He has to be shut out. He has to be sent out. He cannot coexist. And then on the other hand, with the fact that God graciously intervenes and saves Hagar and Ishmael from certain death when they're in the wilderness without food, without water, just getting ready to die and waste away. So on the one hand, it's not that God just simply, with cold calculation, separates the sheep from the goats. But as Jesus says, God continues to show his kindness both to the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He's good and he's kind even to his enemies. But the other part of this is that it's not until you get to Ephesians 
to the New Testament, well, not just Ephesians, but Ephesians one place. Ephesians in the New Testament where you see God's kindness to the outcast and the exile blossom to its fullest. So turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 11. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That sounds a little bit like Ishmael, right? You've been shut out. You're not connected to the covenant. You don't have any stake in the promises. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here's the question. When we read Genesis 21, who do we identify with? Isaac or Ishmael? I heard an Isaac and I heard an Ishmael. The answer is both. Paul says in Galatians 4, for example, that like Isaac, we are children of promise. We have been made part of God's family by His power, by His doing in the work of Christ. But in Ephesians 2, Paul says that all of the Gentiles, anyone who's not an Israelite, is in some sense exactly like Ishmael. He's been cut off and cast out because the only way to get to the promises of God were through Israel. What do you do if you're not true Israel? You're out. Any Gentiles here this morning? All right, that should be all of you. You are the outcast in Genesis 21. You are the miserable wretch that is sweltering under the blazing heat of God's holiness and righteousness, who is shriveling up from exhaustion and from bankruptcy, from no spiritual food, no spiritual water, and God not owing you anything looks upon you with mercy and compassion and says, even though I owe you nothing but death, let me give you life. And just like he opened Hagar's eyes to see water that he had already provided, he opens our eyes to see the true living water that comes through Jesus Christ and the power of his Spirit. As if to say, my provision for you was always here. You just didn't know it until I opened your eyes to see. I had this waiting for you because before you were even brought into existence, I knew that you were one of mine. Come, drink, eat, feast. You who are on the outside, who are on the fringes, come in. Gather around the family table and eat your fill. Feast on Christ. 
I am, you are, we are, because of God's miraculous work, we are like Isaac. We are children of promise. But we cannot forget, because if we, if we do forget the second part of the passage, we begin to take on this air of superiority. We consider ourselves to be the true, by nature, insiders. When we're not, by nature, we're the outsiders. We are children of promise, but we're children of promise who were formerly outcast and who have been brought in. So as we close, if you're here today and you know that you are, like Isaac, a child of promise, even though you were formerly outside of God's grace, cut off from Christ, cut off from life, you have great reason to celebrate. You have an unshakable peace and certainty in this life and even in the face of death that no one else on this earth could ever buy or earn or win. And it's been given to you at no cost. But if you're here, maybe a regular attender, maybe someone who's just visiting for a brief period of time, if you're here and you have not come to know that you have been born again by the miraculous power of Jesus Christ, the working of His Spirit to convict you of sin and to open your eyes to righteousness, to give you something of Christ Himself, I would encourage you, there is no better time than today to make that known and to get it right. Every day that you hear the Lord's voice is another opportunity for you to turn and to receive a gift that He's offering. And so as we close, if that's you, if you're not sure whether or not you're actually one of the children of promise, if you think you may in fact still be on the fringes, on the outside, shut out because you have not had that spiritual birth, I'll stay here as long as necessary. I'll be in the back at the end of the service at the door. You can come talk to me there or you can just sit in here in the sanctuary and I'll make my way back through and talk as long as you want to talk to see if we can get, get that clarified and get it settled. Bow with me in prayer. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your mercy to undeserving rebels and God-haters like ourselves who, if left to our own devices, would much rather create false gods for ourselves or even worship our own existence rather than bend the knee to you. Thank you that you have given us the ability to see your glory in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Would you effectively apply that work to our hearts and minds so that it changes the way that we live? And Father, as children of God, we ask that it would change the way that we even view others who are on the outside waiting to be brought in. Make us cheerful and humble ambassadors, messengers of your free gift. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who has not had the experience of that new birth, I pray that by your spirit you would convict them and show them the emptiness of their life apart from Christ. That they would be convicted concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment so that they would turn to Christ and in receiving him receive the gift of new life. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.